Well, this morning we continue with this series on the Lord's Prayer, the 57 words that changed the world. And as you have picked up, we are studying a prayer and we have now come to the place where we are looking at the word hallowed. <clears throat> this week I was uh, up on Trinity's campus on a couple different occasions and was reminded of uh, the very first weeks that I moved in on campus. I did my graduate work there 20-some years ago and uh, lived on campus in those uh, luxury apartments, the little quad there, uh, lived in the Upper East part of, uh, of Trinity's graduate housing. And I remember uh, very specifically uh, answering the phone one night just a couple weeks into my, uh, into my studies. This is uh, back in the day when the only people who had cell phones were uh, Maxwell Smart and James Bond, and so there was just a community phone there. And uh, when it rang in the dorm, anyone who was walking by picked it up and answered it, and so I did, and said, uh, Upper East, can I help you? And there was a silence for a, a, a little few seconds, and then finally I, I heard some stammering, and, and I recognized almost immediately the voice of my college roommate, Tom Schneider. And he goes, uh, Mike, is that you? And I said, yeah, Tom, how you doing? He goes, well, I, I, I'm fine, but why, why, did, why did you answer the phone like that? And I said, I don't know. I always answer the phone like that. He says, you always answer the phone like that? He said, uh, yeah, Tom, I think they told me to answer the phone like that. They told you to answer the phone like that? I said, Tom, what? why are you freaking out? Yes, I think they told me to answer the phone like that. The phone rang. I live in Upper East dorm. I picked it up and said, Upper East, can I help you? And you're freaking out. And he says, oh, oh, I, okay, Upper East, I get it. I thought you said, I'm a priest. Can I help you? <laughs> Sometimes what we say and what people think we say are different. And in the context of the Lord's Prayer, sometimes what people say and what they're supposed to say are different. Case in point, you probably have heard of the little boy who prayed, Our Father who art in heaven, herald be thy name. But sometimes what we pray and what we think we're praying are different. And that's the case as we look at the first of the six petitions that make up the body of the Lord's Prayer. What most people think they are praying, I believe, is our Father who art in heaven, hallowed is thy name. In other words, Heavenly Father, you are holy. You are majestic. You are wonderful. You are righteous. You are awesome. I declare your worth. But in fact, that's not what we're supposed to be praying. There's nothing wrong with that. As a matter of fact, it's, it, it's what we could be praying in other contexts. It's certainly the language of the Psalms. But it's not what Christ instructed us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. We do not say, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed is thy name. We say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It's not a declaration. It is a request. It is a petition. 
What we are actually praying is, Heavenly Father, would you glorify yourself? Would you magnify yourself? Would you be who you are in a way that, that, that draws glory and honor and praise to yourself? And that is a very different thing. Now, in order to really understand all that's going on in this first of, again, six petitions, we have to understand two concepts perhaps a little bit better than we might. The first is this idea of Hollywood, and the second is the idea of name. And let's start with Hollywood, which I am guessing is a word that you always use only in one setting, and that is the Lord's Prayer. Some of you perhaps uh, are lofty academics and talk about the hallowed halls of higher education, but I doubt it. And so that means that, that this is a word that only comes up one time. Scholars have a word for words that only come up one time. It's called the hapex legomenon, which means that it only appears one time. <laughs> and it, the reason it's, it's significant enough to have a term is because these words are a problem when it comes to, to biblical study or any kind of study. You could have a hapex legomenon in Shakespeare's literature. This is a word he only uses once. You could have a word in a language that only occurs one time, uh, such as Hollywood for us. And, and when th these words appear, they're difficult to study because normally if you want to know what a word means, you look for its use in other settings. Well, when you have a word that doesn't occur in other settings, in that language, you actually have to go back into other languages and do this sort of investigative study in the etymological derivation of the previous languages. It's hard, laborious work, and the good news is we don't have to do it because somebody else already has. And furthermore, the other good news here is that my guess is that you have some idea what hallowed means, some sense that it has something to do with holy. And it does. If we do our, our etymological study, we look at what the scholars say, they trace this word hallowed back in Anglo-Saxon languages to the word haleg, uh, or hail, which, which means to set apart. Which is very much what we find in the Hebrew word for holy, kadosh, which means to separate or to set apart. And, and early on, this word simply means you just set aside something for a unique purpose, whatever that purpose is. You could have five pencils, and you say, I'm going to set this pencil aside for when I take the test. You have made that pencil kadosh, or holy. Now, Words evolve in their meaning over time, and so we study that, and we see the, their derivation, and, and over time we see that this idea of setting something apart, kadosh, holy, is, is, picks up moral overtones. Something gets set aside because it's better. Or it gets set aside because it's better in particular for spiritual or religious purposes. So, if you read in the Bible, you will often see that there are holy prophets, there are holy cities. There's holy furniture. And th these things are set aside specifically because they're better and they are now going to have a religious use. 
And ultimately, the, the, the quintessential use of this term, of course, is as it's used to refer to God, who is altogether set apart from us. In fact, as you may remember, we said that it's not particularly helpful to think of a big spectrum of, of holiness to say down here is, you know, is Hitler, and here we are, and then way down here is God. No, God is is not even on the same plane. He is distinct, set apart, completely uncommon from us. So, in that context, the word hallowed is the verb for holy. It means to make or declare something holy. It is to holyize something or to holyfy something. It is, it is to render it or declare something to be wholly separate because of its moral or spiritual worth. So hold on to that for just a second. The other concept I said that we have to understand is the, is the idea of name. And I've actually um, talked about this on several occasions in the past, so I'll move rather quickly. There's just, I think, three big points to hold on to here. First of all, Names are important, and we sort of intuitively know this, and if you don't think about it much, when it comes time to actually name uh, a child, you pause, realizing that while the child will to some extent make the name, the name will also make the child. And the example that I've used for the last uh, 25 years is that the one week 25 years ago when I was um, working down in South Georgia and I ran across two very distinct names. The first one was Winston Lord, who at the time was the U.S. ambassador to Great Britain. And I remember as I was reading about Winston Lord, I sort of laughed and I thought, well, but of course, if your name is Winston Lord, what other job could you get? You have to be ambassador to Great Britain. You were born to be ambassador to Great Britain. The name has ambassador to Great Britain written all over it. The second name that I had learned that week was uh, the name of the son of the guy that I had actually replaced on this uh, construction crew. Bo Gator had left the job uh, for, uh, to go get another job, but there were lots of Bo Gator stories, and then we started to hear about his son, whom he had named Little Bo. And Little Bo's uh, name, which uh, my boss claimed to have seen on the birth certificate, was officially Little Bo Gator, Harley Davidson, French. And uh, I have not uh, followed the life of Little Bo, but I'm not expecting to see him be appointed ambassador to Great Britain, right? The name would suggest he's headed uh, down a different path. Sometimes you make the name, sometimes the name is going to shape you. Names are important. Well, biblical names are important by a factor of 10. For reasons that are not always altogether clear, whether God uh, sort of prophetically gives the parents the name, or, or whether those names have a shaping, formative effect, we find throughout Scripture example after example of after example of people whose names describe them. So when you read through 1 Samuel and you read about Nabal, uh, you find out that his name means fool. You go, of course it does. 
Nabal is a fool. When you discover that Jacob's name has some derivation to suggest that he's, a, he's sort of a self-promoting trickster, you go, but of course he is. That's who Jacob is. To discover that Yeshua, the Hebrew name for Jesus, for, it, it means that Yahweh saves. You go, okay, I get it. The names are significant. And, and in fact, biblical names are so significant that, that when they are uh, maligned, when the name is maligned, it is as if you are maligning the person themselves. And when someone undergoes a significant change in their life or in their, their reputation or their character, it's not uncommon for their name to be changed. Thus, when Jacob wrestles with God, God says, because you have prevailed, I am no longer going to call you Jacob. You will now be Israel. And when, when Peter announces that Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ, Jesus says, because of this, because of this breakthrough, God is giving you this information, I'm no longer going to call you Simon. I'm now going to call you Peter, right? The, the rock. And, and we see that then Peter, flighty, impetuous Peter, throughout the Gospels, who is, who is embarrassingly just quick to run his mouth and get in trouble, becomes over time, the book of Acts and the letters that we see him writing, he becomes a, a man of great stature and wisdom. He becomes a rock. So we see that biblical names are even more significant. Well, the third point is God's name is the most significant yet. And it's the most significant for a handful of reasons, in part because God chose his name. I mean, nobody else gets to choose their name. They might change their name, but they're not able to name themselves at the time that they're born, right? Their parents name them. Somebody else names them. God names himself. And the names and the titles that God claims for himself are, are remarkably instructive about who he is. We, we can learn a lot about God simply by studying his names and his titles. And, and, and we've got the banners, you know, going across the balcony here that pick up on some of the different titles, names that, that we have for God. Um, Elohim is the, is, the, is the word for God, the title for God that gets used in Genesis up until the time of Abraham. And it, it refers to God as creator. And then starting with Abraham and up through the patriarchs, we begin to see that the term that's used more frequently is El Shaddai which talks about God's power. And then we'll see El Elyon, and we see a, a different titles being revealed up until the book of Exodus, the third chapter, when God calls Moses. And in that interchange, when, when Moses looks out uh, across the desert and he sees that there's this bush and it's on fire, it's burning, but it's not really burning, and so he goes over to examine it, and, and God speaks to Moses out of the burning bush, and you take off your shoes, this ground is holy, and, and then they have this interplay where where God calls Moses to be the liberator of the Jews and Moses who acts in a very by the way non uh, Charlton Heston-ish kind of way he's not tall and brave and broad-shouldered and chiseled he's sort of uh, dodging and whining and trying to get out of it but eventually when Moses agrees 
to accept the responsibility, he says, when I go back to the Jews to tell them that you have heard their cry and that, that, I, that you are going to help liberate them, and they ask me, what is your name? What should I tell them? Now, if you think about it, I mean, the, the, it, it's obvious that, that the Jews who have been in captivity for 400 years haven't had the freedom to worship God. They have become functionally, religiously illiterate. We'll see that when God, uh, finally, when Moses leads them out of Egypt and they go into to Mount Sinai, immediately God will give them the law. He will begin to retrain them. He will begin to re-reveal himself from, from the beginning. They know almost nothing. So it makes sense that they would want to know about this God. It's just a little curious the way they ask the question. You would think, well, what is this God like? What can he do? Tell us about him. In the biblical context, the way all of that gets framed up is, what is his name? Tell us his name, because if we know his name, then we know about him. And of course, in Exodus 3, what we see is that the name that, that God gives. It's not a title. This is God's name. It's the first time his name gets revealed in Scripture. First time God gives his name, it, it is I am who I am, right? It's the, it's the term, Hebrew term Yahweh. It, it, we call it, uh, scholars refer to it as the tetragrammaton. Tetra meaning four because it's so remarkably unique. Almost every Hebrew uh, word has three consonants or three, call them radicals, three radicals. Yahweh has uh, four. It stands out. It's, it's this sacred name. I am who I am. You tell them I will be who I will be. That is who sent you. So we see that names are important. Biblical names are especially important. God's name is most important. And in addition to all of this, part of what we need to see is that God's name is more important still in, in part because um, it is all we have. We, don't, we can't see him. We can't, we, we can't be in his presence in the same way we can be in someone else's presence. And so the name, far more than a placeholder, but the name becomes how we talk about, think about, relate to God. And as a result, what we see in Scripture is the, the, the way the name is elevated. And so, for instance, the third commandment, third on the list of the top ten things that God wants to communicate to people as he is entering into a relationship with them is, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. He will not hold those guiltless who misuse his name. And we see in, in the book of Acts that when the apostles go out and they begin to, uh, to fight against spiritual forces in high places, when they, when they begin to, to stand up, that when they begin to call for God to heal, they always do this in the name of Jesus Christ. And we are instructed to pray in the name of Christ. And it, it's not just to use the word. Right? It, it's in some sense 
to sort of claim the person, to claim a blessing, to, to say, I, I come with the endorsement. I, I, I stand uh, it, it is, it, with my, represent, my representative, Jesus himself. And, and so there's something remarkably unique and powerful in talking about the name of God. And as you read through Scripture, you will see this throughout. In uh, Psalm 54, uh, save me, O God, by your name. Psalm 114, praise the Lord, praise those servants of the Lord, praise the name of the Lord. Let the name of the Lord be praised. Psalm 106, God brings the Israelites out of Egypt for his name's sake. David will recognize that God sustained him, not for David's sake, but for the sake of God's name. We see that this word, this term, these titles are remarkably and incredibly important in ways that uh, we often do not understand. So, how do we pull these two things together? What exactly is it that we're saying? We've got this concept of to declare, to make holy, and this expanded understanding of name. Well, I think we're to understand it this way. When we pray, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, we are not asking God to make himself holy, because indeed, he is holy. We are not uh, asking that, that God would, um, would, we're not declaring that God is holy. That is, a, uh, that is a declaration. This is a petition. We're not praying for the strength to make God holy. We're not praying for the strength to declare and to praise God, although we should. What we are saying in essence when we pray this first petition is, Father, exalt yourself, reveal yourself, magnify your name, break out. Father in heaven, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, our own Father, Abba, enhance your reputation in this world. Push back the night, fill it with your glory, that people will we'll understand who you are and will declare your holiness. Do what only you can do. And by implication of the fact that Christ teaches us to make this request, we are praying that God would do that in our own lives. God, be God. Right? Show up as God and show up in my life as God. Show your magnificence. Do this. And do this in and through me. God, be God in my life. That you would receive the glory and the honor. That's a remarkable request. Now, there's a, a whole number of things that I think we ought to just step back and briefly consider. First of all, this is a great way to start a prayer. And probably, um, if you're anything like me, a better way to start a prayer than the way we often start prayers. I'm embarrassed to say that for the first 20 years that I was a Christian, 
the way I typically started prayers was very much about myself. It, it, was, it was my request. Sometimes it's just forgive me of my sin. Sometimes it's get me out of the bind I'm in. Sometimes it's I want to see this happen. Whatever it is, there was a whole lot of I and me in the way that I typically started prayers. And it's not that these are wrong. There are six petitions in the Lord's Prayer. The first three are sort of eternal issues. But the second three are very practical issues where Christ is going to tell us to bring our very specific needs to God. There's nothing wrong with asking God for things that we want and need. But how much better to start with a focus on Him. Right? To start with His agenda. To start with our eyes focused on Him. To start with the, with the hope that He would be God in our lives. Because that just, that perspective changes how we even look at the things that we are struggling with. Once we get our focus on God. A second thing that uh, I, I think it's worth just pondering uh, is remarkably the verb tenses that are used in the Lord's Prayer. And I know that you are instantly excited about this. But it's worth noting that the verbs that get used in the Lord's Prayer are in the command tone. They are imperative verbs. And this is a bit shocking because, because we are making requests to a superior, right? And we're using the command voice. The Greeks would never use the imperative term when they were talking to, to their boss, right? You, just, you, you don't command your boss, right? You don't give orders up the line. You, you might try and drop information and drop hints, but generally orders come down, they don't go up. And yet here we have the, the, the verb tense suggesting Christ is teaching us to pray these things in the command voice. Now, you will note that it's passive. So in other words, it's not our Father who art in heaven, I command you to hollow your name. I mean, we, we never say that. That's, that's, that's crazy. But it's, it is to use the strongest language that we can. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Would you show up and glorify yourself? Right? Would you magnify yourself? Would you push back the night so that people can see you and be drawn to you and that your name will be exalted? Would you show up, God, so that every knee will bow and we will, we will understand who you are and who we are? So, what do you do with uh, this insight that perhaps... Maybe you were in the small camp that understood the way this petition was supposed to, what it really meant. But let's assume that you're not. So you're not declaring this, you're making a petition. What do you do with this? Well, I, I think the first and, and most immediate application is you make this request. And you make this request part of the ongoing things that you pray. We've said that the Lord's Prayer is a prayer that we pray. It's also a model for how we're to pray. We can learn a lot about the way this prayer gets structured. But part of it is just to say we need, in an imperative, passive tone, 
to ask God to be God and to do that in our lives. That he would hollow his name, that he would glorify himself. We just need to pray this prayer. And I think the second thing that we need to, to do, just as a matter of course, is to recognize how we should treat the name of God. And, and in one very immediate sort of, I hope, obvious application, we just should not be using the name of the Lord in vain in any sense, in any, in any sense, in any way that would cheapen it. It's worth noting that, that uh, the, the name Yahweh, this name that God reveals in Exodus chapter 3, we didn't understand what this name was for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years because the Jews treated it as so sacred they would not say it and they would not write it. And so they wrote, whenever they came to this word, they wrote in code. And it took thousands of years for us to try and crack the code. They, they treat this word Yahweh as And in fact, six months ago, the Catholic Church came out and said, we do not want Catholics saying Yahweh. It's too sacred. And in the Orthodox Church, there are some branches of the Orthodox Church that will never say the name Jesus by itself. They think it's too powerful, too sacred, so they can say, uh, uh, Jesus saves, or Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. But you'll never see them say or just write Jesus on its own because they look at this name as being too sacred and powerful. Now, I'm not suggesting we go there, but by way of, of correction, I said it before you to say clearly, we want to hallow the name because it's more than just a word. And then finally, uh, we want to think about how we claim or use or uh, define the name of Christ and Christian by the way we live our lives. I was, as I said, I was on Trinity's campus a couple times this week. Um, there's a speaker, Ravi Zacharias, was there giving a series of lectures. And one of the things that Ravi said is that he had just been with, uh, a little while ago, he'd been with uh, Billy Graham. And he said that uh, in their conversations, uh, Billy shared with him that every morning, for the last 50 years, he has started his day with a, a, a prayer, which is, Heavenly Father, do not let me do anything today that would discredit your name. Do not let me do anything that, that would, in any sense, besmirch your name. That is his, that is his waking thought. I... Uh, Heard a story a while back about um, Alexander the Great, who, you know, many of you know, was this remarkable leader. He was, uh, he was sort of off the charts in uh, his ability to, to organize and lead armies. And so by the time that he was in his um, 30s, he had conquered the known world. And, uh, you know, been, tu been tutored uh, by Aristotle. He was just this brilliant leader among men. 
Well, after he conquered the known world and cried because he, of course, didn't have any other uh, things to do, um, Alexander the Great passed away. But one of the stories that is told about him is that after uh, every battle, uh, he, the men who had turned and run in combat were brought before him, and almost without exception, they were all put to death. Part of the ways that he led forward to conquer the world is that you know, there's no turning back, there's no fear, there's no, there's no wavering in the midst of a challenge. You, you go forward. And one day, uh, after a battle, they brought uh, this one uh, young soldier before him who had, who had uh, dropped his weapon and run in, as the battle began. And uh, much to their surprise, as Alexander began to question him, he was, uh, he was taken by this young man. He liked the young man. And, and it looked as if he was going to spare the young man's life. And then, uh, as the questioning went on, it's just about to wrap up, Alexander asked this young man, what is your name? And the young man said, my name is Alexander. And then silence falls over the, the court, and uh, Alexander the Great thinks about this for a little bit, and then he says to the young soldier, change your conduct or change your name. And perhaps that is how we might think about this. We do represent in ways we don't want to, but we do represent the King of kings and Lord of lords, and our lives are to hallow his name as best we can. Let me close by um, reading a prayer that was um, given by Martin Luther following a sermon in which he preached on this passage. So I close with this prayer from Martin Luther. Almighty God, dear Heavenly Father, in this wretched veil of tears, your holy name is sadly profaned, blasphemed, and reviled in so many ways. In so many instances, it is regarded without honor to you and is often misused in sinning, so that to live a disgraceful life might well be regarded as the same as disgracing and dishonoring your holy name. Therefore, grant us your divine grace that we might guard against all that does not serve to the honor and glory of your holy name. Help us to root out all false belief and superstition. Help us to bring to naught all heresies and false doctrines which are spread under the guise of your name. Help that no one be deceived by the many kinds of falsehood which go under the pretense of truth, piety, and holiness. Help that no one may resort to using your name to swear, lie, or deceive. Help that we may all use all our possessions, speech and deeds, to glorify and honor you alone. And that we do not seek to claim or seek a reputation in doing this, but that, we, that all we do be done for you to whom alone everything belongs. Help that our good deeds and conduct may incite others to praise and honor you, but not ourselves, exalting and praising your name because of us. Help us so that our evil actions and shortcomings may not offend anyone, leading them to dishonor your name or neglect your praise. Protect us from asking you for anything temporal or eternal which would not serve the glory and honor of your name. Should we petition you in such a way, do not listen to our folly. Help us conduct all our life in such a way that we may be found to be true children of God, lest we call you Father falsely or in vain. Amen.